Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of I Like to Read with me, your host, Rachel Polanski. As you can tell by the title of this episode, we have a lot to talk about, and that's because it has been almost a month, um, if not more, since I have recorded an episode, so I just figured, you know, have a lot to talk about. I was able to, in the thick of and throws of Omicron, I mean, knock on wood that I somehow haven't gotten it at the time of this release or editing, but I was able to make it back to Boston and spend some time with my family. Um, I've seen them since the pandemic. They visited me, but I actually haven't seen my sister in two years. She lives in Boston with my family. I haven't been back to my childhood home or the home where my, both my parents live because they're divorced. The homes where both my parents live because they divorced, uh, whatever. <laughs> and it's just like, d- d- I'm sure other people whose parents divorced when they were younger and or just like so not a good match, just like can't even imagine a time when their parents were together. Like it just seems natural for them to be fully separate. I actually went to the movies four times when I was home. A couple of the things will make the things I want to talk about when the I like to watch before we get to the I like to read and a couple of them won't. Also, side note, I, you know, I'm from Boston. It's usually pretty cold, but it stayed in like the 30s and 40s when I was there, which is not bad at all. And then once I left, there's like a giant cold wave and it's like 12 degrees there. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles at 3.06 p.m. on Tuesday, January 11th, it is like 75 degrees and our room has just like a giant window, which makes it into a greenhouse. So it's like even hotter. Um, so yeah, I also realize how much I slouch you because I think a lot of the time when I look through the episode, like briefly for the thumbnails in the beginning, I watched them and then I like save myself the anxiety attack of like rewatching them because Jason has them, but I just sort of like look through for a thumbnail and a lot of the time I'm like right up on the microphone and they're really slouchy. So new year, new goals were like trying to be like looking at the camera and upright posture as much as possible. Although I think that is slightly difficult when I have to look at the computer for information because right now I'm just sort of like freewheeling it. I always freewheel it. But what did I see in theaters? The first one I saw was West Side Story. When I first saw it, I was definitely like emotional. I think it was really great to just like be in a theater and see a movie that was definitely meant to be on a screen. I mean, it's done by Steven Spielberg. Of course, it's a cinematic masterpiece. I was in West Side Story in high school. I played one of the featured sharks and was in like I Feel Pretty and wore a blonde wig and that was fun. So I have some fond memories of it, but I think some of the casting, <laughs> Ansel Elgort, um, I did kind of like him. Like, I really did like Baby Driver a lot. Fault in the, from our stars was like, whatever. But then there's been some sexual assault allegations that have come out against him. And then just like, upon further examination, like, is he really that good of an actor? No. Is he really that good of a singer? No. Should he have been cast as Tony? No. But I think I'm like letting that detract me too much because overall, we're not we're not playing with quite a full deck of cards in terms of like the best movies I've seen in 2021. So overall, I think it's maybe like lower top 10, but it was really good. And there was definitely some moments, especially towards the end, a boy like that. I have a love. If you know, you know, like that got me. And so that was good. Um, the second one I saw was Nightmare Alley. I liked it. And again, upon further examination, I'm going like the other way where I'm like, I do think it was like kind of long. I think there are parts of it that were like a little bit insufferable, but like, I think the performances were great. I think the production design was great. Um, I just maybe don't like Guillermo del Toro as much as like I could um, or should, but whatever. And the third one I saw was Spider-Man No Way Home. Of course, super gratuitous. Like, um, I haven't actually seen any of the other Spider-Man movies except for the previous Tom Holland ones because I was like a little bit late to the Marvel Universe and Spider-Man wasn't even in the Marvel Universe when those ones came out. It was fun. It was gratuitous. It was really like enjoyable, though. Like I, I it was like for a two and a half hour movie, I felt myself thoroughly entertained. 
um, a lot of the time. And, you know, if you like Spider-Man, if you like any of the Marvel movies, you'll like it. If not, I mean, maybe you'll enjoy it, but like probably not as much. And then the last one I saw, which I don't even like want to really dwell on because it was a disappointment as I knew it would be, is The Kingsman because like the first two are fucking great and iconic. And so it's hard to like live up to those. But you think that Matthew Vaughn behind it would like have done something for a prequel beyond just like a generic World War II movie that had ultimately nothing to really do with The Kingsman except for maybe like a minute of screen time. I don't know about that. And then we're talking, um, okay, I guess I kind of did this weird, stupid Rachel. The last movie I'll mention is not a new movie by any means. It is called Flirting with Disaster. It's a weird little quirky indie movie from the 90s. As my dad pointed out, I like weird movies. Maybe, you know, I don't like the traditional. I do love, I do have a soft spot for like the Spider-Man movies, but I also have a soft spot for like weird indie movies, um, especially ones with Ben Stiller, Ben Stiller in the 90s, like Ben Stiller now icon, Ben Stiller in the 90s, like romantic comedy icon, Taya Leone, Patricia Arquette, um, just fantastic cast. It's a guy who's in search of his birth mother and that journey doesn't quite go as smoothly as he planned. I think um, I saw it initially recommended to me by Emily Nussbaum, who is a TV critic or not just a TV critic, like a critic and writer for the New York Times. I love like anything that she recommends. So I checked it out. I was pleasantly surprised. In terms of TV shows, we are kind of entering back into the thick of good TV coming out that I enjoy watching and don't just like aimlessly look at my phone. I like look at my phone some of the time, but not all of the time. First, we have Jet, which is a TV show now on HBO. Came out like, I think 2019, which at this point is now three years ago. Like more from mathematically wise, we're in 2022. So yeah, it was three years ago. Carlo Cuccino, everyone's like favorite horror queen. Mike Flanagan, thank you for like bringing her back into our forefront. Um, she plays a former spy thief named Jet who is brought back for one more mission. And as we all know, you know, you can't just have one chip. You can't just have one laze. And this so-called final mission leads her down a path of further chaos. Um, at times, it's a little bit not confusing. I mean, it plays with timelines as many pieces of media are want to do it works for the most part because you're like understanding her relationships with the people that she's dealing with in the present and how she's gotten to this previous situation it's of course a little unbelievable because you're like how can one woman like have evaded so many things and gotten out of so many situations but the fact that it's only nine episodes i think it's um renewed i don't know if it's renewed for a second season i have no idea it ended sort of ambiguously where we could have one we could not have one um but either way like enjoyable spy thriller female lead with um a little bit of depth and just like uh twists and turns that you don't always see coming which i appreciate um speaking of twists and turns you don't always see coming search party season five what a great show i mean it's a testament to the show that while i did not love every moment or every choice i respect them with regards to the larger picture, because looking back to season one, I have never seen a show come so far in five seasons. I mean, I wonder at what point they had calculated some of these moves because something's happening in season four and five. Like you're, you're wondering if these were the intended notions of what the characters were supposed to be like after season one and two. I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but just like the tone of season one is so different than the tone of season five, but fits so perfectly. And it's ultimately a dark comedy and the performances of like John Early and Meredith Hagner and the guy who plays Drew, who I always forget. And Alia Shockett, of course, like all fucking fantastic and all just like carry the show in their own ways. Like I want spinoff shows of all of them, particularly Elia, John Early's character. Um, karate fans, we got the newest season of Cobra Kai. Is it cheesy as hell? Yes. Is it melodramatic? Yes. Are there badass karate fight scenes? Yes. Is it part 80s nostalgia? 
particularly me, like for a time I was never alive in and have nostalgia size and fetishized romantically in my own head. Sure. Does it also have like the cheesy CW teen drama elements? Yes. Does it have cuties on both ends of the age spectrum? And I mean, you know, like 18 to 48, 58, maybe 68 if we're being generous. Uh, 78 is like real pushing it. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, that's just fun. Uh, whether or not you've enjoyed the Karate Kid and watch them. I've only actually seen the first one. Great soundtrack. I should watch the other two, but it doesn't matter because like I get it. It's 80s. It's fun. It's cheesy. It's karate. What more could you want? And last but not least, um, Jason and I watched the Monday Night War documentary on WWE, which chronicles the 90, the 1990s decade in the wrestling world, um, specifically WCW versus WWE. And the the rise and fall of the two great empires, and which one comes out on top, and it tells the story um, throughout the decades. It tell or throughout the, specifically on that decade, and it tells individual stories of more of the prolific wrestlers and Eric Bischoff and Vince McMahon. And now I feel like I know so much about wrestling because that was twenty hours, but it was really only like touching the tip of the iceberg. That's what I was about to say, sword, but not in this situation. And. So, but that only covered like a decade and even within that decade, there's still so much. So like, I want more, keep you posted. Who knew that Rachel would like become interested in wrestling? I didn't, but now I am, but we are not here to talk about what I like to watch. Although maybe we are kind of, and we'll like, I like to watch could be like, you know, part of, I like to read, which it is, who knows? Um, so now I'm going to talk about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven books. Normally I talk about five each week while I did read probably at least like 15 books since we've last spoken. Um, Some of them are just like mediocre. And I know that this might be a slightly longer than usual podcast episode. But despite, you know, that we have a lot to talk about, it's hot. And I know you got stuff to do. And I'm sure you appreciate this podcast as well, because it's slightly more bite sized or manageable than some other podcasts, though not to discount them, because somehow I'll still listen to a two and a half hour podcast. It's just different, you know. So our first book that we are talking about is Ordinary Grace by William Kent Kruger. This has been on the list for quite a long time. It was recommended by a listener. Her name is Lena, I believe. I'm probably fucking that up again. I'm so sorry because names are just like, but um, I know you have a little black Kazer logo and you follow and comment on my stuff. So if you're listening, hello. Thank you very much for the recommendation. Finally got the hold back from the library. This one is very much like it really feels like Stand By Me. Stephen King, like coming of age, particularly in that like Great Depression, early 90s, <laughs> early 90s, early ish 1900s Hooverville time. Um, our main character, his name is Frank, and we know that he survives because he is telling this tale like 40 years after this fateful summer. But him and his brother are in a reform school for Indian boys, despite them not being Indian. There they connect with an actual Indian boy who is mute, and then a young girl who falls into their care. So the four of them kind of escape. They do escape. And it also takes on that like sort of Huck Finn, like pastoral, like traveling down the river, escaping through the Midwest. Um, the scenery really comes alive. I, yeah, it's literally, it's Minnesota in the nineteen sixty one. So I take back everything I said about the <laughs> Great Depression in the early nine, the early 1900s, because that's actually, um, you know, I just fucked all this up. What I'm talking about first is This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger. And then we're going to go to Ordinary Grace. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, hey, we mess up. So Lena actually recommended This Tender Land. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm sorry. She recommended This Ordinary Grace. It's hard when an author writes two books that are somewhat similar. Anyways, the one about the Great Depression time periods and the boys and their coming of age going throughout. Um, they both take place in Minnesota as well, but one's in the 60s and one's 
earlier one is much more of a sweeping like escape novel um the other one also involves a murder and sort of escapism but much more of a like contained family small town story whereas like in this case the boys are on an adventure road trip and the different stops that they make so both of these books are really great they they deal with murder they deal with um heavier subjects of like for sure but i think the way that the characters come alive the fact that they are typically young boys and young men about to come of age really adds a sort of soft spot and courageousness that you know in the vein of huck finn and tom sawyer and all these literary characters that you can that you know that kent krueger has paid nod to so i really bunkered a bunch of that but there's a lot of cool commentary um also about like the the preacher scene and the sort of midwest um like bible traveling bible scene there is um, a lot of commentary on religion in the other one as well. So if you're interested in any of that, check out either of these. Um, he also has quite a few other novels. These are just his more recent ones. I promise, knock on wood, that I <laughs> won't mess up the rest of them. Um, our next book is The Mary Shelley Club by Goldie Moldovsky. This one is a young adult one that is definitely a darker and went to darker places than I expected to go. Like, I feel like young adult novels, like, they most there's always sometimes a survivor or like a gratuitous twist that just like doesn't really make sense this one because it starts out on the premise of horror and scariness and our main character is named rachel she has a break-in incident that has kind of kind of has really messed up her psyche um she was home alone and defeated and actually stabbed an intruder and who wouldn't be traumatized by that but she turns to horror for comfort in that situation we meet her a year later where she finds some fellow misfits who make up the Mary Shelley Club at her school. However, um, there are some murderers happening, murder, there's some murders happening in the school. And it seems as if at first their prank club might be related. Then she's, you know, trying to solve the mystery, but there's a lot of cool nods to just sort of more like urban legends and horror tropes and playing with them in a fun way like i said it does go darker and more gruesome and a little more gritty and realistic than most young adult novels so i do think you know this is not for the faint-hearted but it really comes alive and horror fans you will definitely love this one next we have shoulder season by christina clancy this one I had a hold on, I think just from like, it was on my good, one of those ones that I had on my Goodreads for a long time, how to hold my library, really didn't know what to expect. And then it ended up being like a really cool, but like, I just really enjoyed it. Our main character, her name is Sherry. She wants to be a Playboy bunny. She starts out at the Lake Geneva, Wisconsin resort. So it's much more local and it's much more, you know, small town and like family camaraderie feel. So it doesn't have the stereotypical like Playboy bunny image that you'd think that it would have. However, that notion of, you know, like wanting to rise to the top, wanting to be part of Hugh Hefner's mansion and be part of like that whole crowd gets put in her head. Um, there is an incident that happens, however, in her young adulthood that forever changes her and forever shifts her perception. And so we follow Sherry at different points in her life as she struggles to find forgiveness with herself and with others from this incident. The settings are beautiful and just I felt like very it was, you know, very cinematic in the way that just the story flows and you really picture everything that Sherry is going through and can sympathize a lot with her. Um, while it's not necessarily historical fiction because it's not really based on a real person there, is, you know, the Playboy Bunny organization was real. I'm sure that the author did extensive research to make these time periods come alive. Um, it's a sexy, evocative tale that captures a fleeting moment in American history with nostalgia and heart, according to Goodreads. And I have to wholeheartedly agree. 
Next, we have These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant. So we open with our main characters, Cooper, um, who is clearly been through some shit. He appears to have PTSD. He doesn't like anyone else around him. He lives alone in the woods with his young daughter, Finch. And they live off the grid. And at first it seems sort of like a choice, like something fun, like playtime, but it very quickly becomes clear as we dive into Cooper's past that um, he is living there on purpose. And Finch, while she is his daughter, may not legally be able to be there. So naturally he lives with this ongoing paranoia and they live with, um, you know, no one even knows that Finch is there. They only have to get supplies. So there's a lot of like survivalism. There's a lot of like, is this going to be horror? Are they going to be found out? Excuse me. Um, I will give away the spoiler that it does get found out that, you know, he's potentially hiding a girl there. They don't know whether or not it's Finch. But as soon as he hears that, you know, they have to make the decision to stay or to run. So it becomes that aspect of, you know, fight or flight. What would you do in that situation? Again, the setting is super vivacious in this. These cold, dreary woods. Not only is this a painful situation and I can't imagine living off of the grid and like not only living in fear, but as also as a child, like growing up not knowing that there's an entire world out there because Finch is very smart and intuitive, but she's lived her whole life in these woods and knows that there's more. So there's a lot about survival. It's also really nice to see a father, a uh, single father in the situation and his love and his unwavering dedication for his young daughter. Um, it's not something that, you know, you get a lot of mother daughter things, you get a lot of father son things, but father, young daughter, um, without it being like him being abusive or sexually assaulting her, you know, he's just a really good dad who, while he has his demons, never harms his daughter and always wants his best for her. Next, we have Hostage by Claire McIntosh. I'm glad I didn't read this on a plane because it is about a cross-country flight and ev um, everyone is taken hostage on the plane. Mina is our flight attendant that we are following along. She's our main character. So at first, we you're sort of thinking like, oh, it's just going to be like a plane hijacking story. But then you find out these terrorists are smart and they have connections to her daughter and her husband on the ground. And she's basically instructed on this cross-country flight from like Sydney to China, like the first of its kind. Um, she has to decide in split seconds, you know, does she save her daughter's life? Does she save hundreds of people's lives? Like, what do these terrorists want? So it's very fast paced, despite like there being a lot going on. I do think like a little bit, some parts could have been cut down. Be like there's certain like passenger testimonies that like I recommended this to my sister. She did read it. Um, she kind of like skipped around those parts. So while I don't ever really encourage skipping part of the book, like do stick with it if you can. But those are sort of more skippable moments, but it is fast paced. It's well written. The characters are well developed. There are certain twists and turns, particularly one at the end that I really didn't see coming. Maybe it was just because I wasn't paying attention, but I felt engrossed in it. Um, it was a good thriller and maybe just don't read it when you're on a plane or traveling. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I read it like a week before I traveled and I know that it's a book and it's fiction and it's not going to happen, but maybe just don't read it when you're going on a plane in the next day or two, like give it a few days. And last but not least, we have Gilded by Marissa Meyer. I've read Melissa Marissa Meyer for quite a long time. She, I remember she had a really awesome Lunar Chronicles series, which to, was a spin on the Cinderella legend and lore um, and set it in sort of a cyberpunk futuristic world. Now she's taking our story of Rumpelstiltskin and she is shaking it up and she has given agency to the Miller's daughter who like doesn't even have a name in those stories. And the stories are always about, you know, she's used as a plot device and Rumpelstiltskin is really the main character. Well, now Cyrilda as she is called, 
she still spins that tail and says she can spin straw into gold and that leads her to be captured by the king and naturally she encounters a magical being named Rumpelstiltskin who helps her helps her but the way it's framed is like her having so much more agency um the way that you know obviously agency as much as she can being a woman in the medieval times there um there's a mystical curse element added particularly with the king that adds a different element and adds this sort of like familial bond that is not very evident in the story naturally because that's like a children's story and she's expanded it to this fantastic fantasy world um i always really like the stuff that she does i think that she takes a concept that could have easily been tarnished or cheesy or cheap and really gives it thought and care and pays attention to i'm sure not just you know one retelling of the story but takes a lot of research and a lot of different elements from a lot of different cultures and puts a new spin on her fairy tale so you know we haven't been talking that long maybe 20 25 minutes at the most a few minutes longer than most episodes except the author interviews but as always, let me know what you're reading or watching or listening to or consuming or eating. Who knows? I like snacks, too. Um, leave a comment below. If you are not subscribed already and you are listening to me for one of the first times, hey, um, make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Uh, follow me on Apple Podcasts. If you could give me a five-star review, haven't had one in a while, that would mean the world to me. Follow me on Goodreads so you can see what I am reading in real time. And as always, stay reading. Bye, guys. Bye.